So this talk, yeah, I'm the last of the day, so hopefully I'll keep you all engaged because I know you've had a long day. And I think this is a good one for the end of the day. It's separated by kind of like test questions and then we'll go through the answers and hopefully I can give everyone some pearls of wisdom for your practice. How many of you see kids in your practice? Excellent, okay. And when, if you don't see kids, I'm sure you have children or neighbors with children that like to ask you questions. So um, here we go. Let's see, I have no conflicts. All right. So this is the first case. Hopefully the color comes out well. It's a six-year-old comes into clinic, asymptomatic lesion, and it's been there for about one month. And your options are tinea corporis, pityriasis rosea, granuloma annulari, or psoriasis. Here's a close-up. Anybody want to shout out an answer? Pityriasis rosea, right. Sorry, I can't remember the letters. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so tinea corporis. Usually tinea corporis is solitary, but it can be multiple. Let's see. Um, and it can have, it usually has an inflamed edge and it's spreading outward. When you see this in clinic, we all do a KOH and you want to look um, for the fungal elements. The, the cases that are a little more tricky are the tinea incognito and Mayoki's granuloma. So they've been using topical steroids on it. It's pushing the um, fungus deeper into the skin. And then it, they switch. They might use an antifungal. Then they use a topical steroid. They're going back and forth, and it just keeps spreading. If you see this kid for the first time down the hall, you know that is tinea. Um, but they'll come in with a story for months of doing these creams. So those are the cases that are a little more challenging. And then on the face, when that's happening, an oral medicine is better, so maybe some terbenafine. And this kid cleared in two weeks. Here's another case where you have more of a polycyclic appearance because of the chronicity and probably has not been treated correctly. And then finally, kids with eczema are a little trickier, too. We all know they can have secondary infections, of course, more commonly bacterial infections, but sometimes they have a fungal infection. And so if their eczema is not responding like you expect, then always consider this. And here's a nice KOH. It's exactly what we all like to see. All right, pityriasis rosea, which is the case. We'll start with the herald patch, and that's where we get confused with tinea corporis. But usually within two to 21 days, you have multiple other papules appearing on the body and the following the skin, cle the skin cleavage lines on the back, so the Christmas tree pattern. And you have a preceding viral illnesses in some cases, but not always. And most cases are not very itchy, but about a quarter of them may be really uncomfortable. The clearance is typically around six weeks, but it can take up to five months. So um, you'll consider them PR for at least the first several months before moving into other categories. The palm, if the palms and soles are involved, always check an RPR. And of course, the diagnosis is typically clinical, and we usually are just giving supportive care, but there are some reports out there to use acyclovir um, to treat this because of the relationship with herpes um, viruses six and seven. And here's an example. In darker skin patients, you'll have more of a hyperpigmented appearance to your plaques. And here's a nice herald patch and then the multiple papules that come up afterwards. With granuloma annulari, it's never scaly and it's never itchy. It commonly will appear over joints and you have little BB-sized papules running together with a clearing in the center. Subcutaneous GA is common in kids. So if they have a more of a classic area, Sorry, on the hand like this, but have nodules maybe on their um, tibia, then most likely that's also GA. 
It used to be that the knee-jerk reaction to GA was to do a glucose test and look for diabetes, but that has been shown not to be necessary. But you should do a good review of systems and a good family history and make sure that that's not the one patient in a million that you should worry about. The, the treatment is just caring for the parents because they want to do something, but nothing really works. Um, so you have to do a lot of hand-holding and explain to them this is going to take a couple years to go away, but it's not harmful, and this will go away because um, it takes a while. This is a good example for on the fingers. You have this annular appearance, little papules coming together. And as it clears, you get a hyperpigmented area. Common locations for dermal GA are the dorsal hands and feet, as well as the wrist, ankles, and knees. Common areas for subcutaneous are on the scalp, anterior tibia, hands, fingers, and feet. And again, there's an example of as it clears the hyperpigmentation that you expect to see. And then psoriasis is very common. We all see it all the time. It's thick, white adherent cells um, with scale. Guttate form will look like pityriasis rosea, and of course that's the main um, one in the differential that you would consider. Strep is a precursor in a lot of cases for kids, but not always. It's certainly something to look for if they keep flaring up to make sure there's not something that can be treated with some antibiotics or even a tonsillectomy to get better control of their psoriasis. Typically, psoriasis is not pruritic, but we've all seen patients that itch with psoriasis. And, of course, we all know the common locations. There's a couple examples of psoriasis. The thick adherent scale and, of course, the nail changes that we see. All right, second patient. This is a three-year-old that comes into clinic, and for two weeks, they've had this non-pruritic eruption. It's mostly involving the legs and the arms. Is it atopic dermatitis, scabies, Giannotti crusty, dermatitis repetiformis, or Langerhans cell histiocytosis? So a closer-up view for you. All right, someone from the back. Excellent. Giannotti crusty. That's what we're dealing with in this case. All right, so of course, atopic dermatitis is poorly marginated, and they itch. There's excoriation. So this kid wasn't itchy. That's your big clue. Common areas on infants are going to be the cheeks and extensor extremities, and as they get older, it moves to the folds. Also, as they get older, they're rubbing more. Their skin becomes more lichenified. You might have other signs of ATP, like Denny Morgan pleats or hyperlinear palms. And, of course, generalized cirrhosis is the main problem with atopic dermatitis. And our treatment involves um, multiple areas. I like to tell families that there's at least four areas in their treatment plan, and they have to be doing all of this to get it under control. And that involves their anti-inflammatories, which, of course, are usually topical steroids, moisturizing and good dry skin care, antihistamines if they're super itchy and especially if they're not sleeping at night, and then antibiotics or other infection control when needed. This is some t typical examples of atopic dermatitis for you, the antecubital fossa and then the Denny Morgan pleats. And scabies is going to be polymorphous. All the bumps look different from each other. You have papules, you have crested vesicles, scale. In children, especially infants, you might see more nodules, especially around the axilla and on the back. And they're very itchy. The hands are classically involved um, in adults, but not always in, kid, in small infants, usually younger kids it is. 
Um, and symptomatic family members is the typical story. It's the one that tells us, oh, this is what's going on. But I've seen plenty of young infants come into clinic, and you look at them, you think, oh, this looks like scabies, but no one else in the family is itching. And it just hasn't gotten to them yet. So if it has a polymorphous appearance, especially if you have some vesicles on the hands or the feet, then think scabies first and do your mineral oil prep. And then, of course, 5% permethrin cream is our typical treatment, but they have to do environmental decontamination as well. So these are those nodules you'll see in infants, especially on the back, and then the crusted papules on the soles, a nice burrow there. And again, a nodule and um, some vesicles on the feet, and then this is what you're looking for on your prep. If you can't see a mite, at least get some eggs in Scabala. Okay, Giannetti crustes. This is our three-year-old that came into clinic. This is a post-viral monomorphous acral eruption. And many different viruses can cause it. Most commonly in the United States, it's EBV or Epstein-Barr virus. But there's a lot of different ones that can cause it. We don't go searching for the etiology um, because in, in our country, it's not anything that has long-lasting effects or concerns. The rash itself usually affects the arms and legs and the face. It typically spares the trunk, but it may see a little bit of involvement. It is usually not itchy, but it looks like it should be uncomfortable. And it lasts up to eight weeks. So similar to GA, this is a one that requires a lot of hand-holding with the parents because it takes a long time for it to go away. And there's no treatment for it. Unless they're itchy, you can treat their itch. So here's an example of these monomorphous, all the bumps look the same, papules on the arms. And then here, it's very inflamed. You can imagine the parents are not happy when you tell them this is going to take a long time to go away, especially when it's really inflamed on the cheeks. Dermatitis herpetiformis, think about this with really itchy bumps, especially when they're on the elbows and knees and maybe on the buttocks. These patients tend to have celiac disease, and they're extremely itchy. The diagnosis is with the um, immunofluorescence where you see the Ig antibodies to tissue transglutaminase and endomysium. And treatment is gluten elimination and or dapsin. They respond really well to dapsin. So here's an example. This patient might come in, especially a kid, you think they just have really chronic dermatitis. It's not being, um, maybe they're not compliant at home with your treatment plan or not responding. But if they're on a good treatment plan and they look like this, you want to start thinking of other things and perhaps um, derm- dermatized herpetiformis. This is a kid that came in knowing he had celiac. He gets distended every day, um, but he was getting uh, new papules on the knees, excuse me, on the knees here, and uh, this was down on the leg also, and he turned out to have dermatized herpetiformis. And then Langerhans cell histiocytosis. This is one we worry about. We, don't, of course, don't want to miss it, but it's not very common. Um, it's an eximitous eruption that's going to be involving mostly intertriginous areas in the scalp. And you might have red-brown papules or crusted papules in hemorrhagic areas and erosions. And in neonates, they may have vesicular pustules on the palms or soles. And they may have crust there as well and mucosal lesions. The peak incidence is between age 1 and 4. And um, the diagnosis is by pathology having a histiocytic infiltrate that's CD1A and S100 positive. If the child is diagnosed with this, they need a good workup with CBC, chest x-rays, skeletal survey, looking for it in all of their bones, and a physical exam. And the treatment, if it's only skin, can be topical steroids or nitrogen muster. But if they have other systemic involvement, then they tend to be treated with uh, chemotherapy. There's an example of these hemorrhagic papules on the trunk. And here's some more eroded papule or plaque in the uh, gluteal fold. 
Sometimes the papules are not that large or obvious, but see these are all have hemorrhagic crust on each of them. This is a table out of the Hurwitz Clinical uh, Pediatric Dermatology textbook. And just a reminder of the things to think about if you're worried about LCH. And just a recalcitrant subarachnoid dermatitis that is not responding to typical therapy. Localization to the scalp, posterior auricular regions, perineum, and axilla. Eroded papules in the flexural areas. Petechiae or purpuric papules. Crested papules on the palms and soles when you've ruled out scabies. And any of these with lymphadenopathy. Okay, third case. Now we have a four-day-old infant baby comes into clinic with this new rash, first-time parents, so they're very concerned, all these bumps popping up on the trunk and the extremities. Is it erythema toxicum, transient neonatal pustular melanosis, congenital candidiasis, miliaria rubra, or incontinentia pigmenti? Here's the close-up. You see these plaques and papules? Anybody? Any thoughts on the newborn rash? Let me give you your options again. I can't hear, sorry. Miliaria is a good thought. <laughs> Anybody else? All right. This is one that often lands at the pediatrician's door because they can't get in with us. This is erythema toxicum. So erythema toxicum occurs in the first 10 days of life. So this is why you might not see it very often unless it's in your own child. Um, healthy infants are otherwise well. And they have urticaria papules and plaques. They can be as large as two centimeters. You may also see pustules. And it's widespread all over the body. They're not really uncomfortable. It doesn't make them fussy or anything. But if you do a gram stain, which is a really good way to diagnose a vesicular or pustular eruption in a newborn, um, you'll see eosinophils. And they may have a peripheral eosinophilia. And this is self-limited. It goes away within a week. So it's not anything to worry about. Here's some examples. You have these urticarial plaques with the central vesicle or pustule just scattered about. It may be more diffuse and confluent on the face. This is another kid, same thing. And something to know about this child, if you'll notice, has the facies of a Downs child. And if this eruption comes up later, way past that first week of life, and it is a kid with Downs, then you need to think about myelodysplastic syndrome because it can look just like erythema toxicum or miliaria, um, and they would need a biopsy and uh, a full CBC. The transient neonatal pustular melanosis is also very common. It's present at birth, and it's more common in darker-skinned individuals. But you have these soupy pustules, and they rupture quickly and leave a cholerate of scale, as well as a hyperpigmented macule. The um, eruption itself of the pustules resolves within 48 hours, and then the pigmented macules may take weeks to months to clear. It's min it, there's really very little inflammation at all. And if you do a gram stain, you'll see neutrophils with these kids. So a couple more examples of the macules that get left behind in the Colorado scale. Congenital candidiasis is a form of candidiasis in a, in a healthy newborn. It occurs in the first week of life. You get diffuse pustules and some papules with a predilection of the palms and soles. They can be inflammatory, and you may have intact pustules on the back and extremities as well as skin folds, but usually the diaper area is spared. Um, it, and you can have a diffuse dermatitis in, a, in addition to the papules and pustules. 
There's a history of maternal Canada, that's where the baby gets the infection, and then you do a KOH and you'll see the organisms. This would be treated with a topical antifungal. It does not require systemic therapy. So here you have pretty intense papules and pustules on the feet. So this is another eruption that can cause vesicles or papules on the feet. Of course, in an infant that's less than a week, then you're not gonna think about scabies. They haven't been out in this world long enough. Um, so think about Canada at that age. Miliaria rubra um, looks a lot like erythema toxicum. You have discrete erythematous papular vesicles and urticarial plaques with um, prominent areas that are affected or the occluded areas and intratrogenous sites. There's no involvement of the palms and soles with miliaria. And it has, it's caused because of immature sweat ducts and you get keratin plugs and then sweat retention that causes the inflamed papule. They also have eosinophils on gram stain, so it can look a lot like erythema toxicum, so that was a good um, suggestion for this case. Usually miliaria will come up a little later in life after the first week. It's treated with cooling, avoiding excessive heat, not too many layers, and um, light cotton clothing. So typically, I think the fall and spring, especially here in Atlanta, are a big time to see miliaria because the morning's cold, and so you put a lot of clothes on the baby, and then by afternoon it's warmed up, and so several days of that, then they're having um, issues with miliaria. So here's an example, if you can appreciate, there's lots of just small monomorphous papules on the trunk. This child, of course, also has a little inner trigo. And then incontinentia pigmenti, this is very rare, but you, it might come across your door sometimes. Um, it's a diffuse erythematous and linear papules and pustules are erupting in the lines of Blaschko. So following those developmental lines that kind of swirl on the trunk and are linear on the arms and legs. And this is usually a well-infant girl because it is an excellent dominant um, transmission. How, however, it can occur in boys. We do have a boy patient and um, it was a mosaic. And so um, it can happen in boys, so don't d exclude that. They might have eye, um, central nervous system, and dental abnormalities. So they deserve a lot of follow-up and um, sometimes referral to other specialties. It classically has four stages. First, the inflammatory stage that comes up in the first six weeks or so of life with the vesicles and the pustules. And then it turns to more of a verruca stage and the papules are hyperkeratotic and wart-like. And after about six months, it transitions into a hyperpigmented stage and you have flatter um, hyperpigmented areas that over time fade and may lead to around age six or so a hypopigmented stage. But it's always following these lines of Blaschko. And so that's your big clue um, that you're dealing with incontinentia pigmenti. You can diagnose it by pathology, and they um, often have a peripheral, peripheral eosinophilia. All right, so now we're going to move on to an older kid. So a 15-month-old, and they come in because they've had one day of these red spots popping up on their skin. Clearly, she is fussy and not happy, um, and she has swollen wrists as well. So our options for um, this eruption would be urticaria, serum sickness-like reaction, erythema multiforme, Stevens-Johnson, or fixed drug eruption. So here's a little closer up. See all these spots have just popped up in one day. Yes, she's been on medications, antibiotics. All right, so here's your options again. How many people think it's urticaria? How many people think it's serum sickness-like reaction? Erythema multiforme, Stevens-Johnson, and fixed drug. Good. Okay. Good mixture of everything. This one is serum sickness-like reaction. 
All right, so let's go through them so you know them apart. So urticaria will have edematous plaques that come up very quickly. They might have a halo around them, and um, they have oval, bizarre, or um, annular or serpiginous patterns. So they may be more oval, but you may have these really weird shapes too. The key with this is that individual spots come and go. So one spot will come up, it lasts for 12 to 24 hours, that one goes away, and then another one comes up. So this is one of those things where you have to really pick on the parent to give you a clear history of what's happening on the skin. And I'll ask them, is this spot here, how long is that going to last? Is it going to go away in a couple hours and then a new one come next to it, or does it stay for a long time? And that helps you distinguish from the next diagnosis. 10% of the cases of urticaria are due to drug, Um, so it's a common cause, but more often we see urticaria due to a virus or an illness. And treatment is with antihistamines. So serum sickness-like reaction. This will be urticarial-like wheels that come up, but they have this very classic lilac color right next to it or in the center of the plaques. And so that's what you're looking for. When you see that lilac color and you ask the parent, are these individual lesions moving or are they fixed and staying? And they're fixed and staying. Often they'll have some arthritis and periarticular swelling and they have fever, they're upset, they're fussy. And you can tell this child is not happy. Um, They may have some lymphadenopathy and eosinophilia as well. This occurs about one to three weeks after exposure. Classically, it happens to cephalosporins, but it can happen to other antibiotics. And we've seen occasional children that have not had any medications at all. So I think there's probably some virus out there that can set it off too. Treatment is with antihistamines, but if they're particularly uncomfortable, you can give them systemic steroids as well. And it resolves over about two to three weeks, so it takes some time. If they do react to a cephalosporin, you can give them other cephalosporins that are not in that, that's not the same medicine and they won't react. So there's not a lot of cross-reactivity, but they can't have the same medication that they had. So here's another example, these urticarial-like plaques, and then you can appreciate more of this lilac discoloration that happens with it. And here again, you have the lilac discoloration in the center of the plaques. The erythema multiforme is symmetric and fixed, and they have target lesions, so that you have multiple colors, which we, whoops, sorry, we're not seeing in the um, serum sickness-like reaction where you have the purple. And this is, has a predilection for the palms and soles and the dorsal hands and feet. There'll be oral lesions in up to half of the cases, but rarely does EM involve the gingiva. If it's involving the gingiva, think about primary HSV stomatitis in the mouth. Um, and it will last up to four weeks. The majority are associated with HSV, but again, it's usually a recurrent HSV exposure that causes EM, and therefore we treat with acyclovir to suppress that and supportive care and antihistamines. Stevens-Johnson, you're classically going to have mucosal surfaces that are crusted and eroded. You need to have at least two sites. Often patients will have a prodrome, so they were sick for a few days. They may um, have started some medications which are setting off their Stevens-Johnson, or it may be their infection and it's part of the prodrome. They have targetoid lesions that will appear on the body as well, may have bulla and um, epidermal detachment. So for diagnosis of Stevens-Johnson, you need two mucosal sites. 
And then the body surface area that's affected should be 10% or less. When you go over 10%, then you're crossing over with TEN, and over 30%, then think more of a TEN patient that might need to be in a burn unit. Um, most often, a drug is causing Stevens-Johnson, and it's in the first eight weeks of use. We also see a lot of kids that have mycoplasma-induced Stevens-Johnson, and then it's really important that, of course, you're treating the mycoplasma to help the Stevens-Johnson resolve. Occasionally, neoplasias, autoimmune disorders, or vaccination may cause it as well. Um, so we've had children come in the hospital that did not have any medicines prior to this starting. They're negative for mycoplasma, and we have done some searching just to see, make sure we're not missing something like a neoplasm um, that needs to be addressed. There's a very classic hemorrhagic uh, crusting on the lips. And the um, conjunctivitis is exudative. And that's important to distinguish it from Kawasaki, where you have a conjunctivitis that does not have any exudate. And here's a kid that came in the hospital. He has all this erythema. Obviously, he's not swallowing well because of erosions in his mouth. You see some um, exudate and erythema around his eyes. And within two days, this is what happened. It just really discrete erythematous um, plaques around the mucosal areas, which were eroded and, and had vesicles. It's classic hemorrhagic um, crusting. And you can see a more targetoid plaque here on his trunk and on his um, arm. And he was, uh, clearly he's in the ICU, and he was there for um, about a week. But he did do well. He resolved it. This is one where we had a hard time trying to figure out what was setting him off. Fixed drug eruption is localized and sharply circumscribed. It will have a dusky erythematous color to it. It may even get a central bulla. And it has a persistent residual hyperpigmentation once it resolves. Each time the patient is exposed to the offending agent, the same exact site comes back up again. So that's why the name is fixed drug eruption. And initially, the first exposure, it's one to two weeks after that they have their lesions come up. But then every time they get exposed, it only takes 24 hours for that um, recurrence to happen. And they may get a couple other spots on their skin, not just that one area. Classic offenders are sulfas, NSAIDs, acetaminophen, loratadine, and pseudofedrin. So here's some examples out of um, the Bologna textbook where you have this dusky erythema and the groin is a common area and then it leaves the hyperpigmentation once it resolves. All right, case five. This is a four-year-old. He comes in, he has a rash around his mouth and it's been there for two months. And our options are herpes simplex, candidiasis, perioofficial dermatitis, lip liquors dermatitis, or atopic dermatitis with infection. Here's a little bit of a close-up for you. Any thoughts? Excellent. Perioofficial dermatitis. Good job. All right, so herpes, of course, is going to come up quickly and not last very long, so it shouldn't have been there for two months. Um, so you have a breath onset, maybe some tingling of vesicles, often around the lip, and it's uh, localized in most patients. And we diagnose this, if, if necessary, with a DFA or viral culture. And it goes away within about two weeks. And so here's some crusted areas, grouped vesicles around the lip, and sometimes the uh, mucosal surface. Candidiasis, often around the lips, is going to be involved with chelitis. And so you have some maceration and fissuring at the commissures, and um, maybe associated with dental malocclusion or orthodontics and lip licking. This responds best to a combination of an antifungal and a really low-potency topical steroid. So here you have the uh, lichenification and eczema at the corners and the commissures with some erosions and some edema. So think about Canada. 
Periofficial dermatitis, which is our case, you have inflammatory papules and pustules around the mouth, the nose, and the eyes, and maybe even in the diaper area on younger kids, and it slowly spreads over weeks to months. And topical steroids may help it look better, but as soon as you stop, it flares right back up, and it will worsen the rash. Fluorinated steroids have been known to induce this type of dermatitis, but it's not present in most cases, and often you can't find what the trigger is. But it may be more granulomatous. Often in kids, you see these really edematous papules and more severe um, expression. You want to do a really good review of systems, make sure you're not missing like a sarcoidosis, but as long as the child is healthy and growing well and doesn't have any kind of positive um, review of systems, then don't worry about sarcoid. It's just, peri just the granulomatous form of periofficial dermatitis. But a topical antibiotic may not be what um, takes care of it. You probably need to use a systemic antibiotic, and it usually takes at least one to two months to see the clearing. And you may need to sustain that treatment for several months before you can taper off of it. And another um, important point is when they're really flared up, especially patients that they've been using steroids off and on to try to control it, and you're switching them over maybe to a topical antibiotic like metronidazole or erythromycin, you may want to bridge over with the steroid and have them slowly taper off, because otherwise they're going to flare up and they'll call you within two days to say, it's worse, this isn't the right medicine, but you know you're giving them the right thing, so you may need to talk them through that flare. So here's some other kids with these monomorphous papules. Here, a few around the nose and the eyes, and uh, a little bit more granulomatous appearing. And then lip liquor's dermatitis. This is just an irritant dermatitis to saliva, and uh, maybe both the upper and lower lip, or one preferentially to the other, depending on the um, child's habit. They have a dermatitis, not the individual inflammatory papules, and a low-potency steroid is appropriate in this case. Sometimes they show you what they're doing in clinic, and it's obvious. And, um, and they may also have some of the candidiasis and colitis in addition, like um, I mentioned before. And sometimes there's this sparing that occurs. And then atopic dermatitis, um, this is frequent around the mouth and kids with atopic dermatitis that are using pacifiers. And it's, again, a dermatitis, not individual papules like you see with perioofficial dermatitis. You have more of this um, eczematous plaques. And um, they typically have evidence of eczema somewhere else on their body. And low-potency steroids and sometimes antibiotics are used. And this is the problem. They just have saliva and they're getting it everywhere. So, all right. So let's move on. This is a two-month-old. And we go to a diaper rash. Four days for a diaper rash. It keeps getting worse. So they come in to find out what they should do. Is it a diaper rash? Um, so is it candidiasis, irritant diaper dermatitis, psoriasis, seborrheic dermatitis, or Langerhans cell histiocytosis. Anybody? Go back to the options. How many think it's candidiasis? How many think it's an irritant diaper dermatitis? Psoriasis? Seborrheic dermatitis? LCH. All right, good. Most of you said irritant diaper dermatitis, and you were correct. All right, so candidiasis, you're going to have inflammatory papules and pustules. So instead of just the diffuse dermatitis, you should have individual little papules. You can appreciate the edges here. And it can be beefy red, and it occurs in the creases. Um, and it may be after a period of time of having the irritant diaper dermatitis that's being treated. 
typically the diagnosis is clinical if they have these discrete papules, but you can of course do a fungal um, culture. And then the treatment is a topical antifungal, but some kids get really resistant and do require a systemic um, antifungal like um, fluconazole. So here you have these really beefy red papules. They're coalescent in the central area, but satellite papules and pustules around the edges is what clues you in, and then involvement of the folds. And here, again, all these individual little papules. An irritant diaper dermatitis will be erythematous and scaly, like you think of an eczema, um, and it may be, but it may be raw and excoriated. So it's a primary dermatitis, not inflammatory papules like you see with the candidiasis. And typically it spares the creases. If you pull this child's folds apart, you don't see as much of the rash there, especially early on in the, um, in the dermatitis. And you use barrier creams, sometimes a mild hydrocortisone to treat it. The um, use of superabsorbent diapers has been really helpful to prevent a lot of irritant diaper dermatitis um, prior to the um, technology of diapers these days. There was a lot more of the diaper dermatitis than we see now. They can get eroded, um, especially if the child is having an episode of diarrhea, often a problem with their on antibiotics. And in kids that have short gut syndrome or malabsorption issues and have a lot of um, diarrhea and loose stools, it can get really eroded and be a real problem and challenge to treat. In psoriasis, you're going to have an intensely red, well-marginated dermatitis, and it's not responding to your typical treatments with diaper paste. Um, it's usually associated with maybe some other papules, like here around the um, abdomen that makes you think about guttate psoriasis. But you have this nice edge and clear border um, in the diaper area. Sometimes there'll be a family history of psoriasis, and um, you may be changes on the nails too. You can use low potency steroids. Think about whether or not they're still in diapers, how strong you'll go, because they're gonna get increased absorption with the diaper. Um, topical calcineurin inhibitors are appropriate as well. So here you have these just well-marginated diaper dermatitis. And then when you look on the rest of the body, there's other um, psoriatic papules. Again, it's a really discrete area with some thicker scale, and then the papules on the trunk and down on the leg. Seborrheic dermatitis will also be scaly and erythematous, and um, in the uh, groin area will be well marginated, but the other areas that are affected are usually endotrigenous, so under the arms and in the scalp, around the ears, to make you think more of seborrheic dermatitis. It's not that big of a deal to distinguish between the psoriasis and the seborrheic dermatitis because you're going to treat them the same way. Um, the nice thing about the seborrheic dermatitis is it usually goes away as the kid gets older, but psoriasis is going to last with them their whole life. So here's some of the seborrheic dermatitis, again, red plaques, and then the intertriginous involvement. And then Langerhans cell we've talked about already, but look for the hemorrhagic papules, the crusting, um, and uh, petechiae. And these kids are not usually growing well. They have failure to thrive, but they may have the uh, vesicles and pustules on the palms and soles or mucosal erosions. Again, the hemorrhagic papules to clue you in and eroded um, intertriginous areas. And we've talked about this. Okay, so case seven. A three-year-old that has a mildly itchy rash. It's on the trunk and the extremities. It's been there for one month. Let's go to the bigger picture first. So one month, this is their three-year-old. Do you think it's varicella, scabies, Gianetti crusty, pityriasis lichenoides at variforma acuta, or arthropod bites? Excellent. All right, I heard someone pleva. 
Good. All right, so varicella, we don't see this very much anymore because of the vaccination, which is good. Um, but you might see a um, child come in with it um, after they get their vaccination, or they may come in with shingles, so remember that. Um, in any case, primary varicella, usually you have a fever, and you're sick, and then you have these lesions popping up in crops, and you might see different stages on their body. They might have some papules and some macules, and it goes on for about seven to 10 days. The scalp and the diaper area are involved early, and they're usually pretty itchy. A diagnosis can be clinically, or you can do a DFA or viroculture if necessary. And this is self-limited, so supportive care. And here's a good example. You have an erythematous macula with a vesicle, so often um, described as dewdrops on rose petals. With scabies, we've already gone over this polymorphous, lots of different lesions, especially in an infant. You might see nodules. And um, good point that I didn't mention before, that there's no scalp involvement once they're over age two. But below age two, think about the head and make sure they treat the head if, it, um, if you have a, child, a baby that has scabies. Here's just another example of those uh, nodules that you'll see on infants and the vesicles on the soles. Genetic crusty, again, acute onset, remember monomorphous papules and uh, post-viral eruption. It can happen in older kids, too, as kids are older. All right, so pleva. This is an, it comes on acutely. It's asymptomatic. They look like they should be really uncomfortable and they're not. They may have crested papules and um, hemorrhagic appearing areas, discoloration, and really they look like they should be uncomfortable, but they didn't look at their skin. They'd have no idea that it was there. Um, and it's more common on the trunk than the distal extremities. It's more of a central process, but definitely the head and neck can be involved. And um, it comes up in crops, and it goes on for years. And typically, two or three years, it kind of spontaneously goes away, but it's a couple years of dealing with it. Um, UV therapy can be helpful. Systemic um, antibiotics for younger kids erythromycin. For kids who have their permanent teeth, you can use tetracyclines. And um, individual lesions of pleva that are more inflammatory, sorry, like this area, might respond to some topical steroids with or without liquid carbonous detergents. Um, but typically, if you put topical steroids over most of this, it's not going to make a big difference. Here you can see these kind of hemorrhagic encrusted papules, sometimes eroded, and then discoloration. And then arthropod bites will be irregularly spaced. They're very itchy and typically more often on the lower legs. And you may have some urticarial wheels and see some central punctums. And they can have a lot. Some kids get um, exposed to a lot of insects and get a lot of bites and are really reactive, so you see a lot of le lesions. But typically, individual lesions should be clearing up within five to seven days. And antihistamines can be helpful as well as topical steroids. If they're lasting longer than a week, getting on to two or three weeks, then you need to start thinking about lymphomatoid papulosis. So here are some classic urticarial papules on the trunk and um, some with central vesicles. All right, case eight. Three-year-old comes into clinic, and he has this place on his scalp. His mom says she saw it first when he was about six months of age, and it's just been slowly growing with him, no recent um, rapid enlargement. So our options are mastocytoma, juvenile xanthogranuloma, nevus sebaceous, spitz nevus, or congenital nevus. All right, I'm here in Spitz. This one actually is a juvenile xanthogranuloma. It looks a little more red than usual. 
So mastocytoma, you're going to have an oval pink to yellowish brown flat topped papule or nodule. And these pop up between two months and two years of age. You may have multiple ones in urticaria pigmentosa. Sometimes they present as blisters in the newborn. And then as they resolve, you see the more typical tan, discolored, kind of irregular papule. They have a positive derriere sign. When you do derriers, um, there's not a good description out there. I recently looked in all of our books. There's really not a good description or in the literature, in journals, on how to, to cause a derriere. I was always taught to stroke firmly over the the nodule or the papule that you're trying to do a derriere on and do it for at least 30 seconds. So I'll sit there talking to the parents and rub that area. In addition, I'm usually rubbing normal skin too because you want to get a control area also. But just doing one little stroke with your thumb is probably not going to induce it. But that being said, it's not something that's easily reproducible amongst us dermatologists. And um, it's, if you have any question at all, biopsy it to make sure. Um, but if you have a positive derriere and the normal skin's not reacting, they have typical spots, and you probably have the right diagnosis. Mastocytomas usually resolve by about age 10. Again, we don't have great data on this, um, but at least 50% of them have resolved by age 10. If you have a kid with urticaria pigmentosa, you want to watch them into their teenage years and make sure that they do clear, because if they don't and they continue to have their lesions into adulthood, then you need to start thinking more about systemic mastocytosis um, and indolent mastocytosis, and they need further workup. So here's some examples in young kids. You have that tan, kind of irregular papule, a little bit of a pot orange appearance. When you rub it, you get an urticarial wheel. You can sometimes cause blistering by doing that, too. Just doing that. All right, juvenile xanthogranulomas. These are benign fatty tumors. They also come up between two months and two years of age. Initially, they're kind of more of a reddish color, but they should get a really yellow, distinct kind of orange color like you see here. And they may be dome-shaped or even a plaque that's firm. If you have more than three, then you want to send them to the eye doctor because the eye is the most common other area to be involved. And um, these kids deserve a good full exam. You can diagnose it clinically or with pathology if it's not a typical presentation. And these usually spontaneously resolve by about age 10 as well. So unless they're in a highly cosmetically sensitive location, you can usually get away with just leaving them alone and not doing anything about them. And here's a good example where it's more of that yellow-orange color that um, really nothing else is yellow and orange other than maybe anevis sebaceous, and usually you can tell the difference. 5% of um, patients with a JXG will have systemic involvement. So again, a good review of systems and physical exam. Here's one more on the foot. You can appreciate that yellowish color. So nevus sebaceous, also yellow, the other yellow thing that we see, but it's more of a verrucous plaque. Early in infancy, it may be a really flat area of alopecia on the scalp. And the face and scalp is the only place where we see nevus sebaceous. It can be extensive and following the lines of Lashko, in which case about um, maybe 20 to 30% of kids also have some neurologic disorder. As kids get into puberty, they thicken and they become more verrucous on the surface, and they may get a benign tumor. About 30% of them will have some kind of benign growth after puberty, um, but the risk of basal cells is very small. It's less than 1%. Treatment is with excision. So here you have kind of this pinkish yellow plaque with alopecia in the scalp. And then this is a kid that's now gone through puberty, so it's thickened, it's more verrucous. And here's a wart-like papule that's come up, and that was a syringocyst adenoma papilliferum, which is a benign adnexal tumor, but it's the most common growth that we see on a nevus sebaceous.
So Spitz Nevis. These can be lots of different colors. They can be red shades. They can be really dark black in color. Um, often they're smooth and dome-shaped. They are uncommon on the scalp, but they are common on the face. They tend to appear solitary. They are never yellow. And if you use a dermatoscope, then you might see some pigment in one of the ones that's more red shade that helps clue you into the fact that you're dealing with a um, melanocytic lesion. Our diagnosis is by path. And the treatment, this is where we get into big controversy. Do we watch them? Do we excise them? If you ask a pathologist, they'll tell you to excise every single one of them because they do not like the way they look under the microscope. If they have really regular features when you look at it, just like a mole, you could leave it and watch it. Um, but you want to keep a really close eye on it and make sure it's not changing. An atypical spitz needs to be excised and um, with margins. If you see one and you want to biopsy it, be very careful about how you biopsy it. If you don't shave under it, just like an atypical dysplastic nevus, then you don't know how deep it goes. And you don't know if the whole thing is um, typical and benign or atypical. So you want to be real careful. So it can be red. This one's eroded, so that would be in my worry box as opposed to one that I think this is okay. And this one has a, reg a regular shape to it. So again, I think it deserves biopsy. A congenital nevus can be lots of colors too. They can be pink and dome-shaped, like in the um, example patient, or they may be brown shades. And um, typically they show up either at birth or sometime in the first one to two years of life. And they tend to grow with the child. The um, pink shades are more common in the lighter skin patients. These tend to be solitary and they are never yellow. They might have a cerebriform or velvety texture to them. And with puberty, that might get a little bit thicker. And this is another area of controversy. Do we take these off or do we monitor them? Small um, to medium-sized congenital nevi, so ones that are going to be less than 20 centimeters at adult age, are, um, have a slight increased risk for a melanoma, less than 1% over their lifetime. And uh, to this date, there's not been a report in the literature of a child that has developed a melanoma in a smaller, medium-sized congenital nevus before puberty. And so you have a time frame where you can watch it. But you want to watch it and make sure that it's not changing, just like you watch other moles. A giant congenital nevus, a greater than 20 centimeters, these are your big bathing trunk um, nevi, they can have melanoma from birth. And so those kids need really close follow-up because they can have um, some bad uh, changes in their nevus. So with the small to medium size, often I'll watch these. And um, when a kid is old enough to tolerate a procedure in the office and not require general anesthesia to have it removed, then we'll take it off. So maybe around age 10 or 11 before they've hit puberty, especially if it is on the back or the scalp where the child, as they get older, is not going to be able to watch it. And, you know, someday they're going to leave the house and mom's not going to or dad's not going to be able to stop them every month and say, let me look at your mole, make sure it's not changing. And so usually sometime right before puberty, um, we'll have a talk about whether or not to remove it. And here's some examples. You can have uh, brown and pink shades, red-brown papules. Terminal hairs are common on congenital nevi. They don't really let you know whether it's benign or malignant. And this is, of course, a hemangioma next to the nevus. And you can have multiple shades in them as well. All right, so this is our last case. This is a one-week-old newborn. Comes in, has this birthmark on the cheek, and... Um, they want to know what it is, what do they need to do. So the parents are very worried. Is it a nevus simplex, an arteriovenous malformation, a capillary vascular malformation or Port Weinstein, 
or is it an infantile hemangioma? Right, hemangioma, anybody else? All right, this is a tricky one. <laughs> you actually can't tell yet which one is it going to be. And that's because we haven't had enough time to see if it's going to proliferate like a hemangioma or is it just going to be stable like a capillary malformation. So nevus simplex, of course, is really common. Up to 40% of babies will have these. 81% occur on the nape of the neck and often referred to as a stork bite. And 45% are on the eyelids, 33% at the glabella, where it's referred to as an angel kiss. And these are just ectatic capillaries. They're persistent fetal circulatory patterns in the skin. And the central face is involved often, and it's usually very symmetric. So that's what clues you in is the symmetry. It's not just on one side. It's both sides of the face. An arterial venous malformation is very rare, so that would be unusual to present. But it can look like a port wine stain in stage one or the quiescent stage. So early on, it, it looks just like a port wine stain. But these are fast flow, dysmorphic arterial and venous connections. And so if you feel it, you should feel a thrill. Or if you pull out a stethoscope, you should hear a brewery. And so anytime you see what looks like a port wine stain, you want to feel it. You want to see if it's warm. Do you feel any kind of um, pulsation? If you were to laser a port wine stain that's actually an AVM, you might send it into these more aggressive stages. So that's why it's really important to palpate them. And they start growing and getting thicker as they move into stage two and three. And then by stage four, it has such great flow, then cardiac compromise is occurring as well. So capillary vascular malformation is going to be present at birth. This is not um, that common, about three in 1,000 infants. The face and neck, over time, the lesion tends to darken and become more purple, hence the name port wine stain. Sometimes on the limb and trunk, it fades over time. We worry about Sturge-Weber syndrome in these kids. So if they have a capillary malformation in the V1 distribution, and remember that the eyelid area is what we call watershed area, so it could be V1 even if it's on the lower eyelid, so you still want to consider a risk for Sturge-Weber. And it's about 8% if the V1 area is involved. If you have multiple dermatomes involved, then it's about 24% risk of Sturge-Weber. And then they have vascular malformations in the leptomeninges or, and or the eyes. Seizures can occur in um, up to 90% of them. A hemiplegia is common, mental retardation in about half of patients with Sturge-Weber, and ocular involvement occurs in about 60% 60, 60 of patients with glaucoma being the most common. A hemangioma is much more common. These are the most common benign soft tissue tumor in, in childhood and infancy. 1% to 2% of all babies have hemangiomas and up to 10% Caucasian infants. They appear any time between birth and about the first six weeks of life. So you can be born with a um, marker in about 50% of cases there's something on the skin before the hemangioma starts growing. And then they proliferate, and they proliferate really rapidly. And the most rapid growth is at five to seven weeks of age, so a little earlier than we thought. And that was from a recent study by Dr. Frieden at UCSF. And the growth can last for the whole first year of life. And then, of course, they slowly, over about five to ten years, will um, involute. And we describe these as either focal, which is, excuse me, this case, um, or segmental, which I'll show you a picture in just a second, taking a larger area of development. So this is the case. And at one week, it was hard to tell. I went with hemangioma, like was suggested. Um, and partially because of the shape and the location, 
But um, I started some topical Timolol because I figured, why not? It's not going to really hurt the baby to use that. And when they came back at three weeks, it was really much improved, which is not going to happen with a port wine stain. So that helped um, lend to the diagnosis. And then you have this bright red papule that's more typical of a hemangioma as well. But these can be difficult in the first couple weeks to figure out what you're dealing with. So the syndromes with segmental hemangiomas, so these hemangiomas that follow more of these patterns they're not quite dermatomes, but similar to the dermatomes, but you have this central fourth segment as well. And they can be associated with posterior fossa malformations, arterial anomalies that are in the head and the neck, um, cardiac anomalies and aortic coarctation, eye abnormalities, internal clefting, and supraumbilical raphe. So it's important to recognize those oddly shaped hemangiomas and get an appropriate workup. Of the kids with a facial segmental hemangioma, 30% do have face syndrome. So um, they all need to be worked up. And the kids that have face, 91% have cerebral arterial anomalies and 67% have cardiac anomalies. And then the S1 segment is almost always involved and other segments may or may not be involved. So just a take-home message with this last question. Um, with a vascular birthmark, you need to monitor them over the first two months to figure out what you're dealing with and then um, counsel the parents appropriately on these different syndromes that can occur. I have lots of kids that come to me, and the parents are all ready to talk about Sturge Weber, and I look at the infant who's now you know, two months old, so it's had a chance to grow, and I'm like, okay, we're not going to talk about that, but we're going to talk about this other syndrome called face. Um, so it's important to kind of... In, inform them about both so they know that different things could happen. So we've talked about some different rashes and birthmarks, um, some drug eruptions, diaper dermatitis, and inflammatory um, eruptions as well. Does anybody have questions? Okay, that's a good question. Treatment for hemangiomas. Um, I don't have like a set out protocol that I follow. It's some, somewhat more of a gestalt. Um, but a superficial hemangioma will respond to topical Timolol. And so that's a reasonable thing to start with. Um, with systemic propranolol, I tend to use it in areas that the hemangioma is either affecting functions so that's on the eyelid and they can't open the eye, um, or a high risk area for ulceration, such as the lip or the diaper area. And um, ones that are growing in such a manner that I know it's going to leave a surgical defect behind when it involutes. So the hemangiomas that have a lot of deep component and they're growing straight up from the skin in a stovepipe-like manner, they're going to leave a lot of fiber fatty tissue. And so if you have that happening and it's in a cosmetically sensitive area, it's reasonable to try systemic propranolol because I've seen a lot of cases that it reduces the hemangioma such that you don't need surgery when they're older. And so it's made a huge difference in our treatment of hemangiomas. Um, you need to deal with your pediatricians, your local cardiologists, to follow um, their recommendations on monitoring. Here, if an infant's under two months of age, we admit them to the hospital to start propranolol under monitoring. Um, if they're over two months, we have a protocol that we follow in the office and monitor them for several hours with their first dose. And there were recommendations in the Journal of Pediatrics uh, last January and that are good to follow as well. If a baby has a segmental hemangioma, then we work them up before we start their systemic therapy. Um, if you have strictured vessels in the cere cerebral vasculature, then you're at higher risk for stroke. And so if you give them propranolol and you drop their blood pressure, you might give them a stroke. So you have to be really careful with those babies. Okay. 
That's a great question. Babies with scabies, um, when you treat them, after the you know, one treatment of permethrin and then repeated about one week later, you shouldn't really be getting any new burrows, um, but you may continue to get itching and inflammatory nodules for up to two months afterwards because they tend to, especially babies, tend to react for a long time to everything that's kind of left in their skin by the mites. And so that can go on for a couple months. If everyone else in the house isn't itching, then usually I don't worry too much and have them using topical steroids and antihistamines. Mm-hmm. What's the uh, latest take on these Neva whether or not to treat. Um, probably another area of controversy. I think, you know, before when we thought basal cells were really common, then they would all be removed. When they're in the scalp, um, I usually tell the parents, if it's not a very large one and um, so the bald area is not very large, then they might leave it for a while, and that's fine. It doesn't have to be taken off um, when they're babies, and it doesn't have to be taken off at all if they don't want, um, but they need to be aware that it's going to get thicker and it's going to get bumpier, and if they get a growth, then they need to have that biopsied. Um, it's, it's a really touchy subject, I think. If, it depends on the parent. If they're going to have it done early on, the surgery for the surgeon is easier because the scalp's not as thick. There's more mobility, and so you may have a smaller scar, but the infant has to go under general anesthesia. And recently, there's been some good data to show that if you have more than one procedure of general anesthesia before age two, then you have higher risk of learning disabilities and ADHD. And so with anevis sebaceous, you're usually just doing one treatment, not that big of a deal. If you're talking about multiple laser therapies for a port wine stain, it's a bigger deal. And so I tend to lay it out for the parents. There's no hard and fast rule to when you take anevis sebaceous off, if you ever take it off at all. And so they should know their options and do what they feel comfortable with. Anybody else? All right, thanks for y'all's attention.